Hello, how are we doing today? Good? Awesome. Welcome to Cape Christian. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, welcome to all of our people online joining us from around the world. You're so much a part of what we do. Shout out to you guys as well. I'm really excited about this series because we're going to talk for the next three weeks. We're going to talk about money and we're going to talk about finances. Yeah, not everybody all at one time. Yeah, okay, awesome. Yeah, I know, I know what you're all thinking. Here we go. The church just wants your money. They just want your, uh, they just want to, no, we're not doing that. Um, the series is called How to Be Rich. Uh, the series is not called How to Get Rich. Um, I'm not going to give you get rich quick screens. I'm not going to roll out something at the end where if you join my team, we're all going to get rich. We're not going to do that. Um, and I'm really glad that we're going to be doing this because as I say regularly, I said this last week, that one of the things I so appreciate about Jesus is between his instruction and his, his word, the Bible doesn't really leave much up to us to figure out. It gives us instructions on all areas of our lives. Uh, because again, I think a lot of us, you're like me, left up to myself. I make regularly poor decisions. Um, and many of you have made me feel really good about the fact that I'm not alone in that. Um, and so it's a good thing we have the Bible. Well, we're not one of those churches who just looks at the parts of the Bible we like and doesn't talk about the parts we don't like or that are more difficult or awkward. We believe that the, the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's gonna help us be God's people and live like God's people. And so um, the Bible actually has a lot to say about money. Now, I wanna say this because I really believe, I, I can already like feel, I can cut the tension in the room a little bit. I don't think the American church has done a very good job of talking about money in general. I think some churches have, some pastors have, but I think in general, it's kind of went one or two ways. There's this prosperity gospel, prosperity message that the more you act right and do good, God's going to bless you and give lots of things. So just be good and nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. Total crap. It's not biblical at all. It's, it is total crap. And so we're not going to do that. Then there's also, it is, it's just crap. Like, I'm like, tell that to the apostles and disciples who were like beheaded. Yeah, just tell that to those guys. Um, then over here, there's this other part of it where we talk about where if you have anything good, if you have anything nice, if you have any amount of money, you should feel terrible. You should feel really guilty. You're a horrible person. You should have given it all away to somebody else who has less than you. That's also not biblical. That's not what we're going to do. And over here in the middle is how Jesus talked about money and what the Bible says about money. And so we want you to be good with your money. God wants you to be good with money. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes as money goes, so goes a lot of other things in your life. When money is tight, it can create stress in your marriage. It can create stress in the way you live. It can have physical ramifications. It can cause you to lose sleep. Um, and so God wants us to be good with our money. And God is not interested in your money. God does not want your money. You know what he's after? He's after your heart. That's really what he's after. And so we're going to talk about how to be rich because maybe, just maybe, we are richer than we think and we just aren't as good at it. And so the other reason we're going to talk about money is because Jesus talked about money. Did you know money was Jesus's most talked about subject? In 15% of all of his sermons, he talks about money. In the book of Luke, one out of every seven verses talks about money. 11 of Jesus's 39 parables talk about money. And throughout the whole Bible, two, over 2,300 scriptures either deal with money, wealth, or possessions. Why? Because God knows if, if he can talk to us about money, if, if we'll listen to him about money, we might just listen to him about anything else. And so um, Andy Stanley wrote a phenomenal book called How to Be Rich. We're not preaching everything out of this book, but there's some really great stuff in it. It's too good not to share with you. So if anything you hear, you like, you can get some of these. You, we have these at the Connect Desk. Uh, you can also order the Amazon link is on our website. Um, and again, it's not how to get rich. It's how to uh, be rich, maybe how to live if we are 
in fact, rich. So um, some, those of you who are like, man, I just want more spiritual principles. We're going to talk about spiritual principles. For some of you who are like, man, we, I need some practical tools. There's going to be practical tools. And I believe that if we would lean in versus fold our arms and lean back and go, I'm just waiting for you, pastor, to say something I don't like. If we would actually lean in and go, God, what do you have to say to me? I think he's going to speak to all of us. Some of us, he might encourage us. Some of us, he might affirm us. Some of us, he might challenge the way we spend. Some of us, he might just challenge the way we think and see things in general. And I really hope he does that for many of us. And so we're going to open the word of God, and I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to look at three verses, just three verses over the next three weeks. It's the same passage uh, that we're just going to kind of drill down on. And I think there's a whole lot in here if we would open our hearts. Like we did last week, we had so many people say, I'm going to let Jesus be the Lord of every area of my life. Well, this includes money. We're not taking an offering at the end of this, so you can give us all your money. We're not. There's The only agenda is that you can can be the people that God made you to be. So with that, I say, let's pray and let's see what God wants to say to us today. Who's with me? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is alive and active and it has the ability to speak to us. So God, I pray that your spirit would nudge us, would speak to us, would challenge us, affirm us, encourage us, convict us in whatever way you want. And God, may your word bring fruit in our life in Jesus name. And everybody agreed, said, that's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah, that's what's up. So here's where we're going to land. We're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. And here's what you need to know. If you're new to the Bible, new to this church thing, there was this guy named Paul, uh, and he was uh, against Christianity at the beginning, at the onset. In fact, he was so against it, he would arrest Christians. He would try to stop the movement of Christianity. He would even sign off on the death of some of these Christians. He would persecute them. Well, he had this radical encounter with Jesus, got to know Jesus for who he really was, totally 180'd his life. And now all of a sudden, he became one of the main church planters that started the church as we know it. Uh, He wrote these letters to individuals and to churches about how to live, how to operate, what it means to be God's people. And so two-thirds of the New Testament is Paul's letters to either individual church leaders or to churches themselves. And he also raised up young leaders to help them to, to, to move like help move people towards the things of God. And so one of the young leaders that he was really close to was a guy named Timothy. Paul wrote two letters um, to Timothy. One's called First Timothy. The other one's called Second Timothy. Super creative, I know. Um, that wasn't Paul's idea. That was our idea later. Um, and so, but I want to take you to the end of, of the first letter that Paul writes to this young leader, Timothy, and he's instructing, he's encouraging Timothy on how to instruct the people in his church. And I'm going to show you this, and I'm guessing it may have the same reaction or the same impact on you it's had on me. So First uh, Timothy chapter 6, Paul is telling Timothy this. He says, command or instruct those who are rich. Say rich. rich. Those who are rich in this present world. Now, I have read this lots of times. And I'll tell you what happened almost every time I read this. When it says, Paul's going to tell, instruct rich people in this present world, I'm like, well, I can skip that part. He is not talking about me because I ain't rich. He's talking about the rich people, the other people. And I was thinking about, man, I don't think I'm rich. Rich is the other guy. And I don't think a lot of people in my church think they're rich. So let's just go to something better that is actually applying to all of us. But actually, I want to drill down on this because there's something fascinating about the rich. What's rich? Rich has this unique subjective aspect to it that nobody really knows what rich is. And I'll prove it to you. Nobody's rich, but everybody knows somebody who is right? Think about it. Rich is the other guy. Rich is my boss. Rich is my neighbor. To somebody, you're rich. To somebody, you're poor. You don't see yourself as rich. Rich is this elusive, subjective idea. And so what if, what if we, instead of go, well, that's not me. What if we maybe think about the fact that there might be something in this for us? And Paul's going to give some really great instructions about what to do with what we have. Because really, the premise of this is it's not really about what you have. 
It's about what you do with what you have. Amen? So that's what we're going to dial down in. So what is rich? So we as a culture have tried to define what's rich. And rich is this nebulous, subjective, and it totally depends on who you're asking. And so Gallup did a survey. Uh, They're the ones that do surveys, all kinds of ages, demographics. What is rich? Trying to find find out what is rich. And And they only concluded that nobody knows. Because the first survey they did shows that Americans generally agree that as a household income per year, if you make $150,000, you are in fact rich. Now, I know plenty of people who make this or more, and if you were to ask them, hey, are you rich? They would be like, oh my gosh, I'm so not rich. Rich is somebody else. You should see our bills. You should see our debt, the financial pressure. It's not rich. Well, in the same survey, they also uh, asked anybody who made between thirty dollars and $35,000 household income a year, hey, what is rich to you? Well, if you make thirty dollars to $35,000, they collectively said, if you make $75,000, you're rich. So one says 150, one says 75, but I'm sure if you ask people who make $75,000, hey, are you rich? They're like, oh, I'm not rich. I'd need $150,000 to be rich. Then Money Magazine did a survey for all of their subscribers, business leaders, CEOs, all that, and they were trying to figure out what, how much would you need to accumulate? What would you need to have, cash, liquid assets, whatever, to be rich? This is what Money Magazine figured out. $5 million. $5 million. So if you have $4 million, guess what? You're not rich. You have four and a half million dollars, not rich. Three million, not rich. According to Money Magazine, five million dollars. And guess what? I guarantee you, if you talk to somebody who has five million dollars in liquid assets and you ask them, hey, are you rich? Do you know what their answer would be? No way, I'm not rich. I have so much financial pressure, my investments and this and that. I can, let me tell you about the other people that are rich. So nobody really knows what's rich. It's why I say nobody's actually rich, but everybody knows somebody who is, right? Rich is the other guy. Well, then into, and then in kind of just dialing into this conversation, I stumbled upon something that was really caught me off guard. It kind of got me defensive. It kind of made me feel a little guilty. I was like, ah, what? And I, I, I want to know if it has the same effect on you is that the reality is not only are some of the people that are listening to me right now rich to some, but most of us are rich compared to most of the world. In fact, here's a statistic that's crazy. As, as a household, if you make forty four to $48,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. as household income, 44 to 48,000 a year. That was exactly how I thought you would react. Not one person went, praise God, I made it. <laughs> We're the babe up top. We are rich. I've actually been rich for years. I didn't, how was church? It was so great. Pastor told me I was rich. Didn't even know it. Love this church. Yeah. No, nobody, not one person did that. The only person that did it came to two services. That's cheating. So, um, (laughs) but this, what is the reality of this? Your reaction was the same as mine. It's like, whatever. That's not real. That there's, there's nothing motivating about this. There's nothing compelling about this. It doesn't make you feel anything awesome. And I understand I really do get cost of living and it's not apples to apples, but that's a fascinating statistic. So the whole point is this, rich is unbelievably subjective. So for most of us, if you make 48,000 a year as a household income, that means you are in the top 80 million out of, out of 8 billion, which means you make more money than 7.92 billion people on the planet. But here's why this doesn't do anything. This is why it's not motivating. This is why it only makes you feel defensive or guilty is because uh, here's the reality is that wealth has side effects. 
Wealth has side effects. And I wanna talk about the three side effects of wealth, it's your, in, the fill-ins in your planner today, that may or may not be affecting us, which is causing us not to maybe embrace the fact that at least to somebody, I might be rich. And, and wealth has side effects, right? We know, everybody knows wealthy people who are odd, right? Wealth has side effects. And you wanna know, nobody wants to laugh, because you're like, is it okay? Like, and you wanna know, were you normal, got rich, and then you got odd, or were you just always odd and got rich, right? Wealth has side effects. And so I want to talk about, listen, it's going to be okay to laugh. Let's just cut the tension. It's going to be okay. Jesus loves everybody. He, he, we're okay with having money. Like, it's just going to be good. He wants us to be good at it. Um, so let's talk about the three side effects of wealth. And here's the first one. This is fascinating. It's true. And it has to do with the subjectivity of wealth is that rich people live in denial. Rich people live in denial. What do I mean? Nobody's rich. It's fascinating. I, I know so many people. Here's what I've noticed. Tall people have no problem admitting they're tall. Short people will tell you, yeah, I'm kind of short. You know, I was that guy. You know, athletic people will tell you they're athletic. Artsy people love to tell you they're artsy and they love their messy car and their messy room and, and stuff everywhere, but they're so creative. They love to tell you. Introverts even will tell you they're a little introverted. Extroverts can't wait to tell you they're extroverted. Like they need you to know, right? Like, in case you didn't know, I love people. I'm extrovert. Where's the party? You know what I mean? Like that's they can't wait to tell you. But rich people deny being rich. And here's why. And then this is, this is going to help us with our conversation. Because rich people confuse being rich with feeling rich. The reason when I told you if you made $48,000 a year, you, you're in the top 1%, nobody went, we made it! It's because you don't feel rich. And feeling rich is the key to being rich. And feeling rich is what makes being rich so fun. So why does this matter? Because we're going to look at three scriptures. And if we're going to take the Apostle Paul's instructions to rich people seriously, we have to be open-minded or maybe even embrace the fact that, well, we might actually be rich. At least somebody somewhere thinks I'm rich. Because if we won't acknowledge it, if we won't admit it, if we won't at least be open to the conversation, then we won't know how to act or live when we become rich. And maybe, just maybe, more of us are richer than we thought. We're just not very good at it. And that's why we're talking about how to be rich or how to live if you actually are, in fact, rich. So with that said, just want to talk about the idea of being versus feeling rich. Think about this if you can. When was the last time, or maybe only time, or maybe when was the first time you ever felt rich? Because remember, rich people confuse being rich with feeling rich. Do you ever remember time feeling rich? I remember, the, I remember the first time I felt rich. It's also the only time I felt rich. I was 13 years old. I lived with my parents. I had no bills. I rode my bike to work. I rode my bike to school. And that was when I got my first job. I, my dad owned a restaurant. I ended up going in, as an employee of my dad's. I worked and I was a cook at 13 years old. I worked for two weeks and then I got a paycheck. I was so excited, I didn't even pay attention to how much taxes were taken out, didn't care, because after two weeks in 1993 of making $4.25 an hour, which was minimum wage at the time, I got a check for $134 and I went, I'm rich! <laughs> I am so freaking rich right now. I tithed on it, I saved 10%, and I still had over $100, and I'm like, what am I gonna do with $100? Because up to that point, mowing yards and lemonade stands just didn't cut it. You know what I mean? I have $100, so I spent some money, and I put it into an account, and I watched the account grow, and two weeks later, I got an even bigger check, and I tithed on it, and I saved it, and I put it into an account, and I just watched it grow. I have never felt more rich in my life. But here's the reality. I've never had less money. I've never had less stuff. I've never had less responsibility, but I also have never felt more rich. And I'm guessing you may have a story like that. So really, the moral of the story is if you want to feel rich, go get a minimum wage job and go live with your parents. 
Okay, that's maybe not the moral. Some of you are like crying because you're like, that's my reality. Just enjoy it, man. Like embrace it, embrace it. You may never feel rich again. Because think about it, all I had, all I had was money to come in and none to go out. And that leads me to the whole point. The reason you don't feel rich, the reason many of us don't feel rich is the one thing that makes all the difference. It's the one thing that came very easily for me in middle school at 13 years old that has never come easily since. And this is the key to feeling rich. And it's one, this big giant word right here, margin. Margin is what causes you to feel rich. Margin is above. Margin is surplus. Margin is the buffer. See, now when I was 13, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had a lot of margin, right? I wasn't paying car insurance. There was no things, cell phones back then. I didn't have a cell phone bill. I didn't have auto insurance. I didn't have to have gas, pay for gas. All I did is I had to make sure that like the chain stayed on my bike. I was good. I had, I had so much margin. Why? I had all this coming in and no going out. I had margin and margin has never been more difficult since I was 13 years old. Margin is simply this. For those of us who like definitions, margin is the ability to make or earn money or to spend more combined with the willpower or discipline to spend less. You are not going to see commercials about this. You're not. Nobody's advertising this unless it's a financial planner and they just want your money, which will erode your margin. (laughs) Margin is the freedom to spend more combined with the ability or the willpower to spend less. And margin is the key to being able to live how God caused you to live. Margin is the key to feeling rich. In fact, lack of margin, I believe, is what concludes so many rich people, according to maybe Paul's standards, to conclude that they are, in fact, not rich. And it's like, how can you consider yourself not rich? It's not because we're not rich. It's because we don't have margin. And so for some of you are like, okay, pastor, you got my attention. How can I create margin? Well, I'm going to give you a word. And some of you, I mean, it might like a little bit. But if you want to create more margin, either make more or spend less, or here's in your current reality with nothing changing, downsize. I know when I say that word downsize, some of you, like you feel terror rise up in your heart. Your palms are sweating and the thought of driving an older car or not getting the iPhone 11 Pro Plus Max, whatever, or not going on the second vacation or not maybe doing the other rental property. Downsize, like if you're just like, if that's you right now, I just have really good news for you. That's a rich person problem. (laughs) You're probably rich. If you're feeling like, if you're like, I don't want to downsize. Only rich people have to even think about downsizing. So like, look, at I mean, Paul is like wise, man. Like, this is really good. Okay. Marge, you don't want to downsize. Why? Uh, because, because it's like, oh, but that's how you create margin. So I want to talk about this for a minute. So Paul goes on. He says, now command, we're going to go back to our scripture, command or instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant. Don't, don't think you're better. Don't think you're wise. You're smart. Don't think you're better than somebody else. Don't be arrogant with it. And this is kind of the premise for the next three verses. You know, sometimes uh, we can convince ourselves we're more important or we do this for rich people. We just like everything they say is perfect because they're rich or whatever. He says, don't be arrogant. And so for there, we kind of draw, draw a line to our second uh, kind of side effect to wealth. And so not only do rich people live in denial, but this kind of goes in the category of arrogance is rich people can be plagued by discontentment, plagued by discontentment, not ever being content with what you have. And here's the reality. And this is just so true. We know this. The more we have, the more we want. See, you're a smart audience. You're a really smart audience. The more I have, the more I want. 
I, it's, the, this, it's this desire or it's this appetite for newer and nicer. It's this idea, I want newer, I want nicer, I want better. The more I have, the more I want. And really, honestly, all this can be summed up into this one word, more. I want more. I want more. I want to have more. I want bigger. I want better. I want nicer. And I want newer. And again, there's nothing wrong with this in and of itself. But what do we know is true about any appetite? What happens when you feed an appetite? It grows. Not only does it grow, it's never fully satisfied. And it's like, feed me. And again, this can be food. This can be anything in our lives. It can be finances when we have an appetite. So we have this idea or this myth. If I could just get the newer, if I could just get a little bit nicer, if I have that, then I'll be satisfied. But you get it and you're satisfied for like five minutes and then you're bored with it. Or you look on Instagram or Pinterest and your neighbor like did it better. And you're like, Ugh, not fair. I need newer and nicer again. You know, or the curse of comparison comes in. And so as your appetite, and here's why this so matters. Because every time we feed it, it grows. And our appetite, as our appetite for nicer and newer, or our appetite for more grows, it actually begins to erode your margin. So again, there's nothing wrong with upgrade, no more newer. But if it comes at the expense of your margin, now we might have a problem. Because margin is what's going to allow us to be God's people. It's going to allow us to, how to, to operate our money the way God wants us to. But this appetite grows. And some of us, we can't ever create margin. Because as soon as we get margin, we fill our appetite with more nicer or newer versus go, hey, instead of that, let's just starve that appetite for a minute. And let's create some margin like we've never experienced in our life. Can I get an amen? amen. And now the next thing you know, because you always have this appetite that grows, you're a rich person that feels financial pressure. Can you imagine rich people feeling financial pressure? Sounds crazy, right? I mean, to, to give you an example, I've been to several third world countries. I've been to Africa, I've been to Asia, I've been to Central America, uh, Suba, Col Colombia, which is in the, the kind of the outskirts of Bogota. I've been to poor villages in China. I could never imagine, I could never imagine sitting down with an orphan that I was working with at the orphanage in Mexico trying to explain to them the financial pressure I've had this summer of trying to get the chemicals in my pool right. You know, like it's just been such a hard, such a hard summer. Like the pH levels are just out of the control. I need more chlorine and salt. I've just dumped so much. Like I just, and man, and now it's like, do I need yard control? And I got these bugs and my pest, my bug guy. Like while I'm sitting, like a, a kid who's waiting for a, hopefully a bowl of beans and rice today. I'm like, yeah, I'm paying my bug guy so much. And he still can't get rid of the, rid of the ants on my lanai. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? Like, I, I, could not, I could not imagine. Now, again, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to make my... I would feel embarrassed and feel a little guilty. Again, now, I shouldn't feel guilty for having things, but for perspective, that it's, it's a different type of pressure because it's a different type of world. And so it kind of illuminates the problem, the truth, and the, the problem and the truth is that maybe most of us maybe are rich. We're just not very good at it or never... Nobody ever taught us how to do it or do it God's way, to, to how to manage and steward the resources God has given us. And so this idea comes, and this idea of better and nicer, newer and more, we are constantly bombarded with the process of like upgrade. Upgrade, right? See, upgrading is something rich people do because rich people don't like to wait for things to break. That's so 20th century. Like, don't wait. They just like to get the nicest and newest and upgrade. And again, there's nothing wrong with, with upgrading in and of itself, but we just don't like to wait for things to break. I know rich people who will take a really nice car and take it to the dealer and just give it back to the dealer. And then they'll give the dealer more money and they'll drive the same car off the lot. It's just one year newer. That's what rich people do. It's upgrade. Or I know people who will go into a kitchen and this kitchen has counters and a refrigerator and microwave and oven and they tear it all out and they gut it and then they replace it with counters, refrigerator, <laughs> microwave, and an oven. And listen, there, there's no shame in that. I'm about to replace my bathroom because it wasn't constructed well, whatever. But so again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with upgrade. We're not doing the guilt thing. There's nothing wrong with upgrade. Um, 
so here's what I'm not saying. This is so important. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with more. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with upgrading. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with nicer or newer. But what I am saying is don't upgrade at the expense of margin. You hear that? If you have the, the, the acumen to do it and go get it and still have your margin, do it. So God's blessed you, do it. If you're good with your money, do it. But don't let it be at the expense of margin. It's like, man, in fact, speaking of margin, I just read something recently. It just blew my mind. 80% of people who are in the middle class in America, 80% from lower middle class to upper middle class, wherever you find yourself on that, 80% of people in America cannot pay $500 cash for an emergency. $500. I mean, that, if for middle class, that's not a ton of extra money. But what it tells us is that there's nobody preaching this like, hey, let's create margins so we have safety, so we can protect ourselves and so we can generously give to the things that God's most cares about. Do you hear what I'm saying? You with me? Say, yeah. yeah. Why? Because we feel, the need to, we feel the need or this aptitude or this appetite for upgrade because wealth has side effects. So first, we have rich people who can live in denial. Second, we have rich people are plagued with discontentment or this desire for more feeding this appetite. And then the third one is this, and we find it right here in the scripture. Paul goes on to Timothy and he says this, command those who are rich in this present world, don't be arrogant, nor to put your hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but put your hope in God. And here's the third side effect. The final one we're going to talk about today is rich people suffer from the migration of hope. The migration of hope. What do I mean? At one point, we had no choice but to put our hope and our trust in God to provide and take care of us. And so our hope was in God's promise to be a loving Heavenly Father, to take care of us. Even in his, even in his word in Luke 12 and in Matthew, Jesus said, God takes care of the flowers and he takes care of the birds and he loves you so much more. Don't you trust him to take care of us? And we start there. But as we accumulate and as we save and as we gain for ourselves, our hope can migrate from God's promise to take care of us to our ability to earn or hoard or store up. And wealth can become a substitute for God. It's the migration of hope. I used to put my trust in God. Now I put my trust in my ability. And so without meaning to, we allow our hope to shift. And it looks like this. Go ahead and put that up there. It starts, we have our hope and our hope is in God's promise to do what he's meant to do in our life, which is to take care of us. And we have our hope in God's promise. And what happens is the needle moves and our hope shifts from God's promise to our ability to earn and take care of. And all of a sudden, and it happens so subtly, and we're all so susceptible to it, is where do I really put my hope? Who do I really put my faith in? What am I really trusting? God to be, to be the God of his promise to take care of us or for my ability to take care of myself? It's the migration of hope. And so with this idea, I just got a question for you to consider, just to think about this. In this idea of God's promise versus our ability, how much money would you need to secure your future against all imaginable eventualities? How much money would you need to secure your future against anything that could possibly ever go wrong? I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about diseases, death. I mean, you're talking about all of it. How much would you need? Now, here's what I know. Wherever you're at online, wherever you're at, I don't know most of your financial situation. I don't know your story, but I know the answer to that question, and it's the same for all of us. More than you currently have. <laughs> no matter what, and no matter how much you get, the answer to this question is always going to be more than you currently have. So what's my point? We will never, ever have or accumulate enough where we can go, I have actually ran every scenario and I'm set for all of it. And nor has God asked us to. You know what he's asked us to do? He's like, hey, why don't you uh, let me worry about that? Why don't you let me take care of you and you live for the day, you follow my instructions, you be about what I am about. Watch what Solomon says in Proverbs 30. I love, Solomon was a wise, wealthy person. Here's what he says. This is in the Old Testament. He was a king. He said, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me my daily bread. 
Just give me what I, he's saying, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Just give me my daily bread. Watch this verse nine. I love what it says in verse nine. It says this, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord anyway? That's good stuff. Solomon's saying, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. I just want to trust you with my daily bread. What I'm, you know what Solomon was afraid of? He was keenly aware of this idea of the mar- migration of hope and going, I'm just afraid that if I get too much, I might actually convince myself it was all me and I did it and I deserve it and I earned it. And I could get to the point so subtly without even recognizing where I go, who's God anyway? I did this for myself. I love that scripture. And so here's where we kind of land the whole conversation. And this, is, this happens so easily and I, probably all of us have gotten caught up in this at some point. In an attempt, in an attempt to secure our future, here's the, here's the temptation right here. In an attempt to secure our future, we find it more difficult to give generously to the things that God is most concerned about in this world. In our attempt to take care of ourselves, to set up ourselves for future eventualities, in an attempt to try to be secure, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, we actually find it more difficult to give generously to the things that God is most concerned about. And this is why it matters right here. Because what is God most concerned about? What is he most concerned about? People, us. He wants people to put their trust in him. He wants people to know him. You know what he's concerned about? He's concerned about kids in foster care. He's concerned about orphans who don't have parents. He's concerned about single moms trying to make it happen. He's concerned about widows. He's concerned about rich people who have all kinds of money, but no hope because they don't know Jesus. He's concerned about people. He's most concerned about us and our heart being his and him dictating our life because he knows how best it should go. It's what we talked about last week. It's why we had so many people say, I want to put my, I want to put my, my faith in Jesus to run every area of my life. Because this should be the end goal. This should be what it looks like to be a believer is that, man, instead of trying to secure my own future, I'm just so good. This is what good, being good at being rich looks like. I can just give generously to the things that God is most concerned about. And that's what we do here at this church. All the money that comes in here either goes to the operations of doing this or partnering with all of our ministry partners, uh, whether it be here locally, missions, church plants, um, adopting kids. It's why we do Cape Christmas where we're doing holiday meals for for families that can't maybe afford it or maybe one of their parents is incarcerated or there's kids who can't get gifts. And so we send them to schools and we do meals and we do all that. Why? Because we want to be really good at giving generously to the things that God's most concerned about. So my family, instead of giving my daughter a bunch of presents, we're going to give her a couple presents and we're going to give a bunch of presents to kids who wouldn't have gotten them otherwise. Because I want to be good at giving generously to the things that God cares most about. And here's what, here's what, watch this. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Here's the end result and here's where it lands. He actually says this. Go to Timothy um, 6, 17. He says this. So command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Don't let your hope migrate. Don't put it in wealth, which is uncertain, but put it in God. He says, God, who, watch this, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Wait, pastor, are you telling me that God has blessed me so that I can enjoy it and bless other people? Yep, pretty much. God wants you to enjoy what he's given you. He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to like enjoy your time on the earth. He also wants you to enjoy giving to the things that make his heart happy. The things that he cares about. He wants you to be able to enjoy it. He wants you to go, oh, I can't wait to adopt this family. I can't wait to give this. I can't wait to talk about margins so we can give more generously to the things that God is doing in, in our community or in our world or over, overseas. And listen, 
we're not gonna we're not gonna be the group that fights over like we should give more locally, we should give more to Africa. No, we just want to give to the kingdom. That's all Jesus said. Just give to the kingdom. It can be local church plants, it can be missionaries. Let your thing be your thing. But let's let it be about what God is about. Why did Jesus say all this? And here's why this, this whole thing matters. Because the chief competitor, the chief competitor for your heart, you know what the chief competitor for your heavenly father is in your life? It's money. The chief competitor for your heart and your attention and your focus, the chief competitor for your heavenly father is going to be money. It's not Satan. Most of you didn't wake up this week going like, man, should I serve Satan this week? I don't know. Like, sounds kind of appealing. No, you did not think that. It's just funny because it sounds so ridiculous. But you know what we did wake up going is like, I hope my job goes well. Maybe I need a promotion. How can I get ahead? How are my investments? And again, there's nothing wrong with fiscal responsibility. We're all about it. But God knew that it wouldn't be like, hey, should I, solve, should I serve Satan? It would be like, hey, should I go after money? Money will be the chief competitor for your heart, for your attention, and for your heavenly father. And that's why Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there's where your heart is. Wherever your heart is, there's where your treasure is. So I want your treasure, not because I need your money, but I want your treasure because I really want your heart. Actually, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. He says, nobody, no man, no person can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and Satan. No, it doesn't say that. He didn't say Satan. He said, you can't serve God and money. Now, watch what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you cannot have both God and money. It doesn't say that, right? Freedom to have. He just says you can't serve both God and money. God's like, hey, he knew some of us were going to be rich. So he's like, hey, Timothy, tell the rich people it's okay to have money just as long as they don't serve money and they're generous about the things that are the most important to me and they're giving to things that really matter and trusting me with their hope and their future and not their own ability. You can't serve both God and money. So in conclusion, I got good news. I got bad news. The good news is you're probably rich. Or at least somebody, if not many people, think you are. The bad news is you're just not very good at it. <laughs> or you might suffer from one of these side effects, or you don't, but your spouse does, or somebody sitting next to you does. One last story, and we'll close. My cousin, uh, just about my age, when we got out of college, he left. Uh, he went to school to be a teacher, but he left to go work at a city mission in Oklahoma City. He worked uh, among the poor and, the, and the, just tons of poverty. And he literally sold everything. He drove this, his grandma's car, this like bucket of bolts, um, like nothing, got rid of, had nothing. He lived in the same dorms as the discipleship program where they were trying to re-entry, like help them re-enter into society and make them employable, people who've been addicts and all kinds of things. And just unbelievably selfless. He, I mean, he had nothing, but he was just loving his life and he was just doing the work. And um, I'll never forget this. I remember... Um, one day, a family came through just to see what the mission was about, and they had, they had some money, and they had some resources, and they were so compelled by my cousin and what he did and what was going on in the mission that they gave him a brand new Ford Mustang. Like, they saw his bucket of bolts and like, here, have a brand new Ford Mustang. And I was like, yeah, man, you deserve that. And I'll never forget when he told me, because we were talking, and I, and, I, and I go, so what are you going to do with it? He goes, well, the first thing I did is I asked God, is this for me or is this for somebody else that just needs it, and you just want me to hold on to it for a minute? I'm like, that is so not an American mindset. The fact that he didn't even consider, well, this is mine and God has blessed me because by God, I'm given to the kingdom and I'm doing ministry. Didn't even cross his mind. What crossed his mind is who else might need this? Because I'm fine. I got a bucket of bolts that works just fine. And so he felt like he was just supposed to ask that question. True story. Two days later, some missionaries were traveling across the country and their van broke down in Oklahoma City at the mission. They were about to go on the mission field. They were finishing a trip. They were doing something. 
Two days later, my cousin says, I had a feeling you were coming. He says, I'm supposed to give you this brand new Mustang so you can either get to California or you can sell it and get your stuff there so you can go do the work of God because I'm doing just fine. That's what it looks like to be somebody who is generously giving to the things that God cares most about. Because in our minds, we'd have been like, yeah, somebody who sold it all and put it all on the line, you deserve a new Mustang. And there's nothing wrong with a new Mustang. I just never forgot that for me and the impact it left on me because it's caused me when things come my way to not just go, thank you, God, for blessing me because I probably deserve it. After all, I do ministry. It's caused me to ask the question, when I get a raise or when I get blessed or when I get something, is this bonus for me? Is this, is this blessing for me? Or is there somebody else who's never going to meet the other side of that, that this is just supposed to pass through my hands instead of stick to my hands? Sometimes God just wants to bless you. And sometimes God wants to bless somebody else through you. The problem isn't whether you have it. The question is, are we in a position to hear God say, this one's going to go through you. And this one is for you. I'll just say this. I love being in a church where a lot of you, you get this. You're so generous. But I still think God wants to say something to all of us. So I got two questions as we close. Just two really simple questions. Next week, we're gonna, it's going to be really, really good. You don't want to miss it. But before we get into next week, two questions. Because God's not interested in your money. I hope you hear that. God's not interested in your money. He's only interested in your money because it leads to your heart. So question today. Where's your heart? Where is your heart? It's probably not like this, like trying to like figure out, should I serve Satan? But where is your heart? Is it God? Does he have all of it? Does he have your heart? Second question is very simple. Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Who are you trusting for your future? Your own ability, your boss, your job? Or do you have a perspective that says, even my job that I worked hard for and I went to school for, God has provided everything I have comes from God. And I want to be good at giving generously to the things that he cares most about. So I'm going to evaluate my life and look at where maybe the appetite for more or upgrade is eroding my margin because I just want to be really good at being rich. I hope this week this causes you to think and pray a little different, maybe some good conversations with you and your spouse to go, where's my heart? Where's my hope? Where's my hope? Where's my heart? Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for just... uh, uh, enhancing our perspective. God, I, I just, I'm so glad you don't use guilt. I, don't, I know you don't want us to feel guilty or bad about what we do have or don't have. And, and I'm, I'm just so glad that the prosperity thing's not true. I'm glad you don't use guilt. But God, we just want to be good stewards of what you've given us. And more importantly, God, if I could have one prayer for everybody listening, it's that we would just have your perspective when it comes to stewardship. We would just have your perspective. We would see what you see. We would care what you care about and that we would learn what it really means to put our hope and our trust fully in you. God, help us on this journey. Help us to be good at stewarding what we have so we can give generously to the things that you care most about. And I pray that this holiday season, we would just, this would just be another opportunity for us to be reminded it's not just about us. It's about you and the things that you're about, which is other people. And we want other people to know you just as much as we do. So help us to do that in the best way possible and in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.